0: Well, we are starting a new series uh, this week. It'll be a four-week series. It's basically on church history. And I don't know if you got the church email that, that basically announced the topic as the Imperial Church. If you were expecting a Star Wars theme this morning, <laughs> you need this Sunday school class. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, we we're not going to have a Star Wars theme today, um, but Imperial Church—the title is a little bit misleading. Um, I am going to go past the a little bit past the fall of Rome, so I just picked Imperial Church because it kind of highlights uh, what I'm covering and 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 all of the 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 issues that we're going to be dealing with fit into that category. So. Uh, that's why I selected that title. Uh, we're covering basically uh, from three twelve, as you can see, through four fifty one. And but I want to back up a little bit because last time in church history, what we did was we covered up until roughly about the year three hundred. And what we really saw, because there was a transition that happened, and that's a lot of what we're going to look at here in just a, a little bit. But. Um, up until the year 300, the church is it's growing, but it's still a minority. It's a small group of people. And the makeup of the people was distinctively different than what you're going to see after 312. And in particular, as we move further into the 4th the century. And so you have this group of people. They're persecuted. So the church is marked mostly by persecution. They are not in favor uh, with the Roman government, and in fact, they're uh, maligned and ridiculed. It's a uh, the majority of the church body during the first several hundred years of the church of church history um, really was outcasts. Uh, it was not popular to be a Christian. In fact, it was dangerous to be a Christian uh, because you didn't know when you might be called upon. Uh, to give an account of what you believed and then be persecuted or sometimes even put to death. And that's especially true if you were a leader of the church. So as a leader of the church, um, you were under the, uh, the spotlight, as you will, in some instances. Now the persecution ebbed and flowed, so it wasn't like it was consistent all the way through, but there were certainly points where it was extremely dangerous to be a leader in the Christian church. Well, all that does change, um, and it changes really with uh, the date that we have on the PowerPoint is 312. Um, Let me make sure I'm not missing any. Oh, yes. One pagan writer described the early church before uh, 312. One pagan writer described the Christians this way. He says, Christians are ignorant folk whose teachings take place not in schools, not in open forums, but in kitchens, shops, and tanneries. Kind of gives you an idea of the flavor or the makeup of the body of Christ before 300. But something happens, and that date is significant. 312, does anybody know what happened 312? Constantine? Who said that? Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, Constantine is the emperor, and he's expanding... Actually, there's two emperors. Let me go to my next slide. There we go. Uh, This shows you the makeup of the Roman Empire. You have the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. Constantine is the emperor over the Eastern Empire, and Licinius is the emperor over the Western Empire. But something significant happens, and I wish... I don't think this works. Can you see my pointer? Nope. Um, That's a bummer because I was really hoping to kind of highlight some things. But if you look there, uh, where Rome is, uh, close to Rome, there was a bridge called the Milvian Bridge. Constantine was, um, he was going into battle, and he saw a vision. And at that point, it's under this sign or symbol, you will conquer, and it was the cross. And so Constantine at that point uh, converted to Christianity. Now, his conversion is debated. Uh, we don't know how genuine it was, but uh, certainly something happened to Constantine, and so uh, he converted to Christianity. Well, that had a huge impact on the church, and that's kind of what we're the implications of that is not really what we're looking at in these four these four weeks. But the implication of that was tremendous on the church because now you have a situation where you're no longer being persecuted. Constantine is now pushing the Christian religion. Not only does he recognize recognize Christianity as a religion, uh, he is now pushing Christianity. And so where you once had this situation where it was dangerous to be a Christian, now all of a sudden things have turned Now it's advantageous to be a Christian. And so before it was dangerous to be a Christian leader or a church leader. Now it's something people are seeking after because you can gain prominence, you can gain even wealth. And so you have this switch that happened and that's going to have some profound impacts uh, on the church Some negative, some positive. We're really not going to look at the negative ones too much. We're going to mostly focus on the positives. One of the things that happened as a result of this is before the church was marked by martyrs and then you had uh, apologists who were really defending the Christian faith. And so you had this emphasis on uh, defending Christianity to those outside the church well, now that Christianity is, the, is accepted in the, Rome, in the state, by the state, uh, you have, now you have a situation where you're going to have conflict within, and that's really what we're looking at. So four weeks. Let me kind of go through where we're headed, um, and then we'll get started. So we're again, four weeks. We're covering roughly about 150 years. Uh, the first week we're going to look at, as your notes say, controversies and councils. The second week, we're gonna. So, really, what I'm doing is I'm holding the, the 150 years up, and we're gonna look at it from different angles. Uh, so, the second week, we're gonna look at the doctrine of the Trinity, um, which is really what these councils are 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 hammering out. But we're gonna kind of back up and take a look at what does the Bible teach about the Trinity, and and how do we how do we see that working out in the church all the way through uh, 451. And then the last two weeks, we're going to look at some significant or noteworthy theologians of this era because there are some major figures in this period of church history. So that's where we're going. Uh, Why do we do church history? Well, I feel like this, this part of church history is so crucial to understand things. Nearly every cult that I could think of, there's a problem with what we're going to be looking at in these councils. Uh, and in fact, a lot of what we see today is just a rehashing of what we see in the councils and the issues they dealt with In So, and I will make this point next week as well, but what you're going to see in the councils, it's not that the councils are formulating doctrine. What they're doing is they're looking at scripture and they're saying, this is what the Bible teaches. So they're affirming doctrine, not creating doctrine. I think that's uh, an important point. But before we begin, I did want to ask this question, and I know it's, I know it's an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, I've had a lot of time to think about it and read about it, and I know you guys haven't. So, <clears throat> but I want to get you thinking. What I don't want is this to be a Sunday school class where we're just going over uh, some dates and some names and things like that. I want it to be very practical for you. Uh, so actually, before we do that, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for faithful men and faithful women in church history who really held to their faith in you. And Lord, we thank you for people who are willing to, at at the risk of their own life, stand for your truth and be a pillar of truth. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that as well. Father, may we be bold and, and may we make sure that our doctrine is pure, that it is sound and in accordance with sound teaching. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So here's my question, a little bit of background and then I'll ask my question. Say you're sitting at home on a Saturday morning and someone knocks at your door um, You go to the door, there's two people standing there. One of them is an older gentleman and one of them is a younger gentleman. And they ask if they can talk to you. These people are Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, The question that I have is, help me think through, and again, I know it's an unfair question, (laughs) but help me think through how do you deal with this question that will get brought up at some point. That Jesus is is not a deity. He is not divine. He is a created being. Because that is the position of the Jehovah's Witness. So they're going to come to your door, and they're going to challenge you on that point. How do you respond? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. We as it in were. are insinuating there is more than one person there that's the other person there that we're talking about right there. Mhm. price. Yeah. That's the first place I go and there plenty of things a Okay. Yeah, good. So the uh, plural in genesis, yes. Good, John 12. This is great. Yeah. Yes, John. And it's in John, but I'm not sure whether it's 12 or 15 or somewhere in He says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sickness. Mm. This is the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, Christ Yeah, yeah. So the I am, he says that several times. Did you have another one? Yeah. Right. Right. yeah 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 they have uh an inspired version the and they add the they uh, well they're in their inspired version um (laughs) so yes and it's they they add the indefinite article there yeah Mm Mhm. very good and y'all are hitting on some verses that we're going to be coming to in a little bit um and and you'll be surprised at some of the arguments that are made using some of the, sim, not that same passage, but very close to that, where it's used in defense of that position. Yes, sir? Yeah, but consideration that they're not actually going by the Bible, they're actually going by little Campbell to use the Bible to watch hmm And so therefore you have to go to their false document and point out the in so Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. They don't even perceive um, Christ to be the Christ that we know. Right. They don't perceive him as Christ. Jesus to him is just a perfect man. And they consider Jesus and Satan to be brothers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And Satan being a fallen angel, I'd point that flaw out of the first one. Yeah. I'd go to their false doctrine and point out their flaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so back to the, yeah. One other point, mm-hmm. they Oh, really? Yes, and so one of the things that was really confusing to me is they were sued uh, in court and their translators were even three for a on for the New World Translation of the program, and they were given texts to translate who they were to be able to. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so yeah, all of that to say, and you guys did a great job, so it wasn't an unfair question. Uh, <laughs> um, so all of that to say, how do these things that we're going to be looking at, we're still dealing with today, and so it's important that we're grounded in our faith, that we're grounded in our understanding. Uh, so it's not just a you know a futile exercise to look at and, and study some of these things which, which, you know, the people are trying to figure out as the church is moving along. And then these councils come along and they, yes, this is, we are affirming this is what the Bible teaches. And so, uh, yeah, that's where we're headed. Uh, thank you. Um, and we're going to dig in a little bit more. So if you look at your notes... We're going to start with the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on these. Uh, The other thing I realized this morning is, uh, I apologize, my outline's not very consistent. Um, I'll do better next week, I think. I'll try. Um, So, the Council of Nicaea, what is the issue? And, and this kind of gets into what we were just talking about. There was a conflict that began in the city of Alexandria, and this is where I really need my pointer. Um, Alexandria's right here at the top of right, where the Nile River, right there in Egypt. Uh, so some, let me point out some of the key cities. That way I don't have to stop every time. So we're going to be dealing with... Let me go to the next map, actually, because it's a little more helpful. Oh... That's not so helpful. Uh, <laughs> it looked better on my screen. <laughs> um, so you, everybody see Constantinople between the Black Sea? Everybody see that? So that's going to be a major point. Uh, one of the councils takes place there. And if you drop down from Constantinople, there's a, uh, a little projection in the uh, where it says Diocese of Pontus. There, that's Nicaea. That's where we are. The Council of Nicaea is happening there. So this is the other thing that's happening in the church now. All of a sudden, you have the Emperor Constantine is a Christian. Uh, at least he claims to be a Christian, and we'll take him at his word. And he is now he is trying to use Christianity to unify uh, the Roman Empire. And one of the things that he does is when he sees that there is uh, disputing going on, it's here in in Alexandria, and you have the bishop and the presbyters arguing. You see this person named Arius who is a presbyter of the church at uh, Alexandria, and he is gaining influence, but the bishop is opposed to him and his teachings. Well, Constantine's now going to step in. And he's going to say, hey, I want to call, I see this conflict, it's growing, and I want to call all of the bishops. So let me go back to the other map, and then I'll come back to this one. So this map shows you where Christianity has reached in regard to the Roman Empire. So uh, if you look, at, shows the lines in 325, if it has the red lines, that's where the Christians That's where Christianity has really spread, and and that's where it's focused. And then the red line would be the Roman Empire. And so what he's going to do is he's going to pull bishops in from all over the Roman Empire. For the first time in history, the church has the ability for all of the leaders to come together. Whereas before this point, that could not have happened and would not have happened. Not only is he calling them together, he's also paying for them to come. So he's providing transportation for all of the bishops, and he's calling them together, and he's putting this question before them. Arius teaches this. Alexander's opposing him. You know, what is, the, what, is, what, is what, do, what do all the bishops say? And that's kind of a simplistic version. Actually, all of my notes are sort of a simplistic. There's a lot happening here. I'm just hitting on... You'll notice in your notes it says the significant issue. There are other issues they're debating, but but for the purpose of our Sunday school class, we're just looking at kind of the main thing. So Arius was a presbyter, and he uh, was very popular, and his influence influence was very great. Um, And he taught, similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was not co-eternal. With God the Father, and so um, Alexander condemned Arius and removed him from all of the church posts. But Arius refused to accept the judgment of Alexander and appealed to the people of Alexandria, and he was very popular there. He also appealed to other prominent bishops, and and the the church really was threatening. Uh, there was a division that was growing in the church, and Constantine steps in calls all the bishops. Uh, at this point, 325, Constantine is the sole ruler of Rome. He has defeated Licinius, who on the other map was the other ruler. Now it's just Constantine. So this is the issue, the significant issue. Uh, and I apologize, I don't have a copy of my notes. So if I have a blank and I'm not giving you... No, 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 keep them, keep them. Uh, but if I, if I have a blank and I don't cover it, let me know. That would be helpful. Um, the significant issue is the deity of Christ. And there are three main positions at the Council of Nicaea, and I think I have all these in here. Um, the first one is heterousias. Uh, these are Greek words, all three of them. And basically that means different substance. And this is Arius' position. There was another influential leader named Eusebius. Uh, there's a lot of Eusebius's Uh, but uh, this Eusebius was a follower of Arius, and he would end up taking on Arius' argument and his campaign for his position after Arius dies. Um, The position he takes is this, and it's kind of interesting because he uses some of the same passages that you guys brought up earlier. Um, So Arius would see, for example, in Colossians... He really kind of focused on this. There were a couple of things that were significant for him. In verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Arius said, well, if he's the firstborn, then there was a time when he was not. And that was sort of the motto of the Arians. In fact, they would say there was, this is their motto, there was when he was not. And so he would also look at like Proverbs 8 where it talks about wisdom and they would see that wisdom basically is a personification of Christ. Christ is God's wisdom. And therefore, in in Proverbs 8, there's the suggestion that wisdom was, it talks about wisdom being the firstborn. I'm sorry, it talks about God bringing forth wisdom. And so you have these two things and logically Arius came to this conclusion. God is one. There's one God. The Father has fullness of deity. He begat the Son, therefore the Son does not have fullness of deity. So that was the reasoning, and it, it was really a logical argument. Um, it wasn't so much, I mean, obviously he had, he had Scripture he would use, but it was more of a logical argument. Athanasius summarized his position this way. I know it's not really fair to use Athanasius' summary because he was his opponent, uh, but we'll assume that Athanasius was, <laughs> was gracious with his position. Uh, God was, This is what he said, uh, summarizing Arius' position. God was not always a father. There was a time when, he, when God was all alone and was not yet a father. Only later did he become a father, and the Son did not always exist. Everything created is out of nothing, so the Logos of God came into existence out of nothing. There was a time when he was not, that is their motto. Uh, Before he was brought forth into being, he did not exist. He also had a beginning to his created existence. So that's sort of the uh, Arian position. Um, The second position that was represented at the Council of Nicaea, uh, let me back up. These are properly ecumenical councils that we're dealing with, that we're looking at today. And Basically, what that means is the whole church was involved. Um, there were other councils that met to decide things, but they weren't ecumenical. Um, and so, usually, especially with the first two we're going to look at, they, they developed a creed. And the creed, after that, was used to identify orthodoxy and heterodoxy. Um, Second position is homoousias, uh, and that literally means the same substance. Um, The main proponents of this were Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, who would become the bishop of Alexandria, uh, and we'll talk about Athanasius. He's one of the key people. We'll do that in the third and fourth week, probably the third. Uh, The position of this same substance group is that Christ is co-eternal with the Father, never to change, um, and that Jesus was always was, that the language used in Colossians uh, they recognized as a Hebrew concept, not a Greek concept. And so when the when the New Testament writers describe Jesus as the firstborn or use the language of begotten, it was to point out the supremacy of christ so uh, in in the hebrew mindset the firstborn was the supreme one the ruler and so it was not a sequencing as as the a greek mind would see it but the hebrew mind saw it as a supreme being and so um, they would make that argument and then you had a, the last group which was really a minority uh, and it was sort of uh, hey, let's, this is, the, this is the middle of the road group. <laughs> uh, let's, let's try to appease both sides. And this is the home, let me see if I can say this right. The homoi usias. Notice there's an I in this one. The second one does not have the I. Um, how many of y'all have ever heard of the saying, there's not an iota of difference? Well, some people think this is where this came from. There is a huge difference with the small Greek letter, iota. <laughs> uh, so this group, their position is that uh, that Christ was, was a subordinate. Uh, he was divine. This one's hard to understand. He was divine, but not a deity. So in subordinate, let me make one clarification here because if you're if you're familiar with some of the trinitarian debates that are happening now uh there's some debate over subordinationism um economically this is going to get confusing uh not ontologically (laughs) this is talking about ontological uh, which basically means that christ is subordinate uh in his being to the father he is not deity equal with the father not functionally subordinate. Does that make sense? So, economically refers to functional. Christ subordinates himself. Uh, He submits to the Father. That's a function. It's not who he is. He is God. He is fully God. Uh, So, that's ontological. If I haven't confused you enough, let me just move on. Um, So, the results... So, 318 bishops attended, along with presbyters and deacons. Uh, it lasted about 41 days. And let me go to the next slide, and I'll show you the creed that they developed. So, remember the three positions, uh, the Nicene Creed, and, and you've got to keep in mind when most people refer to the Nicene Creed, they're talking about the next one, not this one, um, because the next, the next council we're going to look at basically adds to this. This is the original, so it's a little bit different than probably what you may be familiar with. But notice the language, notice the emphasis. This is where I really need my pointer. Uh, it says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, Of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. You get the idea. Christ is God. He is full deity. Begotten, not made. So he wasn't created. Being of one substance, and this is where that one substance, the same substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which he in heaven and in earth. I'm sorry, both which be in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation, and notice the emphasis here, the whole kind of focus is on why did Christ come? Well, he came for salvation. And if he came for salvation, part of the argument was how could um, someone who wasn't fully God save mankind? How could another created being save mankind? And so the the focus is really on redemption. And who for us men and for our salvation, he came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. And he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And whoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of Man was not, or that before he was begotten he was not, that's Arius, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature or subject to change. All that to say, the Catholic and apostolic church anathematizes them, basically kicks them out. Um, So that is the original Nicene. That is the conclusion of the council. Uh, Arius refused to sign, along with a um, a few other of the presbyters, uh, including Eusebius, um, and he was banished. Um, well, the church didn't banish him. Constantine banished him. But what's interesting about Constantine, and you'll see the influence of Arianism continues in the church, which is why there's another council, um, you see even at, at the end of Constantine's life, he's baptized by Eusebius. Uh, and so you see this wavering in Constantine going back and forth. Um, and you see that in the church as well. Uh, after Alexander died, Athanasius became the bishop of Alexander, uh, the city of Alexandria, not Alexander, and he would lead the fight against uh, Arianism. The, the issue was not completely settled. Aria still was very influential, and there were other bishops who were influential who held to the position. So the next council is the, uh, Constantinople, in 381. Uh, and this, again, kind of is the death blow to Arianism uh, because they resoundly refute Arianism, but then they also add some things because some other things are, are happening. So here's the issue, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. So the Council of Nicaea, it was more the deity of Christ, uh, and they're going to deal with that, but now something new has happened in the church, and that is where we get to Apollinarius. Apollinarius uh, was a bishop of Laodicea, and he was a bitter opponent of Arius. And so you can kind of see what Apollinarius is going to do is in more response to Arius, he's going to swing the pendulum over to the other side. And so, not only did this council deal with Arianism, because it was still held, uh, and it was still widely held in the church, but Apollinarianism had also crept in, and he denied that Christ had a soul or a spirit. And so, his main point was that Christ was not fully human, so they're wrestling with the idea of how does God become a man, and that's, we're going to see that in the next council too, but... When when Apollinarius looks at Christ, Christ is not fully human. He is uh, one person described it this way: He's God in a bod. He it's it's fully divine, and he's just in the shell of a human being. He has no soul. He doesn't experience uh, human being uh, humanity the way that we would, and so. So that's Apollinarius. Uh, He basically taught that Christ Christ lacked a human nature. Um, uh, So I have some rebuttals to that, but I'll save those for later. Uh, And then the, the thirdly, you had the orthodox position, those who held to the biblical teaching affirmed by Nicaea. So what happened at the council? What are the results? There are 186 bishops that attended. It lasted three months. Can you imagine? Um, I can't. Uh, it affirmed the Nicene position of the full deity of Christ, and it condemned Apollinarianism. Um, and so, I think, uh, yes, I have this up here. Let me give you this one. Because you can kind of see what they added. So this is what most people recognize as the Nicene creed. Um, but this is, this is what was uh, you can see they took the creed what I did was I underlined what they added and I put a line through the things they deleted um, and I'm not 100% sure why they deleted what they did uh, but, for, but you can see the reasoning behind the, under, the additions and so um, this is the conclusion of the council of Constantinople in 381 we believe in one God the, I'm not going to read that first one because that was in the original, but look at the second paragraph: "Who for us, men and for our salvation, came down and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried." That's a direct response to Polinarius. So, if Jesus was not fully human, Uh, and they're really hammering this that he was born of the holy spirit he was deity but also the virgin mary the humanity um he was crucified so apollinarius if you hold to apollinarius's view where it was full deity no humanity then god was being crucified god was being buried and 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 the church responded to that and said no uh, Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered the humanity. Again, there's this humanity wrapped up in that he was buried. And Thursday he rose according to the scriptures. Notice the emphasis on the scriptures. They're not creating anything. They're affirming. And he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. So he is God. He is human. Uh, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Uh, and then we believe in the Holy Spirit. Notice they add this, um, because, and what you're seeing is the doctrine of the Trinity being formalized. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Yes, I have it on your notes. I don't have it on mine. <laughs> uh, not on your notes. I have it up here. Who proceeds from the Father. Uh, and the son this was not in the original uh, at, uh, in 381 but it was added later and it would end up causing a division between the east and the west church um, or at least sparking the division uh, so uh, the western church added that he proceeds from the father and the son uh, who is the father and the son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke by the prophet so Pretty much they're saying, we believe Jesus Christ is fully God, fully human, and that the Holy Spirit is fully God. So you have one God, three persons. Uh, And then they added, they took out the anathema, uh, and then they added uh, that we, you know, the confession of sin for the remission, one baptism for the remission of sins, uh, and then the, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So that is the Council of, of uh, Constantinople. Did I say Chalcedon earlier? I meant Constantinople. Now we get to Chalcedon. Um, so that, that's the issues in the first two. They're similar. Um, now you're having questions of, okay, Jesus is fully God, And he's fully man how does that work how do we figure that out and there is mystery here we will never figure this out maybe one day in heaven God will help us to understand but our finite brains cannot comprehend the things we're dealing with apart from the revelation of what God gives us Um, but how do these two natures relate the, the full humanity, full deity. Uh, put another way, if the Nicene Creed acknowledges that Christ was of the same substance of the Father, how is He the same substance regarding humanity? And that's what the Council of Chalcedon is looking at. There's a, a debate going on. Uh, At this council, you have about 520 bishops gathered together. There's other people involved. I'm just giving you the number of bishops because they're kind of the key players. Um, The significant issue here is how do we reconcile the full humanity and the full deity of Christ? How do those things work? So, again, you have three parties. The first party is the monophysite party. Basically, it's a Greek word. It means one nature. So this group... Uh, they believed that Christ uh, in the incarnation had one nature, uh, that Christ was out of two natures, he became one nature. Um, hence, God is born again. This, kinda, this is the confusing part. God is born, God, is, God suffers, and God is crucified and dies if, if this position is right because uh, the person of Jesus Christ is uh, one person, there's not two. Um, It's then you have the Nestorian party. Uh, Both of these first two are condemned. Views Christ as two persons, two natures. Uh, No confusion between the two. They're two distinct persons, two natures in one being, which to me is more confusing than than the other <laughs> uh, but really you have a dual personality at some points Jesus was divine some points he was humanity but he was never both the same at the same time so that's Nestorius um, and then there was a middle position this is basically the Orthodox position it was offered by Leo who was the Bishop of Rome um, These are basically his four main points You must recognize both the true humanity and the true deity of Christ. Number two, you must recognize two distinct natures, one personality, and this is the hypostatic union that we're going to see. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but this is where the the church kind of laid out the hypostatic union, the two natures becoming one. Uh, He was born of the Virgin Mary, and that the two natures are without confusion change division or separation so he's responding to both the previous uh, positions the result the middle position was recognized as the orthodox position Uh, the council stated in part i didn't give you this one on a slide uh, but let me just read uh, let me read you part of what they concluded that's significant for what we're looking at it says, "Following the holy fathers, we teach with one voice that the Son of God and our Lord Jesus Christ is to be confessed as one and the same person; that He is perfect in Godhead and perfect in human, uh, in manhood, very God of very uh, I'm sorry, very God and very man of a reasonable soul and body, consisting." consubstantial with the Father as touching his Godhead, and consubstantial with us as touching his manhood, made in all things like unto us, sin only accepted. In other words, Christ was sinless, uh, that, that's the only part of humanity that he did not share. Um, This one and the same Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, must be confessed to be in two natures without confusion, uh, without change, without division, without separation. So, this is the conclusion of the Council of Chalcedon. They're basically recognizing, this is what we see in Scripture, uh, that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. And... We have these basic things that we have to affirm according to Scripture, but beyond that, we're kind of out of our league. That's above our pay grade. Um, It's above our intellectual capacity. We can't understand uh, fully this. Um, And so once we recognize what Scripture teaches, this is what we're putting forth as what orthodoxy is. Uh, Gregory of Nasea Uh, One of the Cappadocian Cappadocian fathers, uh, he writes this, Now it was not, and again, notice the argument going back to redemption. The focus is on redemption. Now it was not the body merely, but the whole man compacted of soul and body that was lost. We're talking about mankind. So it wasn't just our physical bodies that were lost. It was all of who we are. Indeed, if we are to speak more exactly, the soul was lost sooner than the body. He therefore who came for this cause, that's Christ, who's coming for redemption, that he might seek and save that which was lost, that which the shepherd in the parables calls the sheep, both finds that which is lost and carries home on his shoulders the whole sheep, not the skin only, that he may make the man of God, complete, united to the deity, in body and in soul. Full humanity, and so Christ had to be full humanity. Um, so the Council of Chalcedon condemns uh, Nestorius and um, the Monophysite position, and it concludes. Well, that's the conclusion that God, Jesus is. God and man. And so now you have this uh, doctrine or teaching of the church that is, you have the Trinity, that God is one, yet there are three distinct persons, and each person is fully God. Um, and I'm going to stop there today. Next week, we're going to look at specifically at the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, And and what I want to do is look at what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of the Trinity, but then also trace through church history how the early fathers, even before the time period we're looking at, affirmed this teaching, but also how the councils continue to affirm this teaching and continue to affirm it. Um, and, And as they confirm it, Because, again, people are trying to figure this out, and they're struggling to figure it out, and the church is coming back again and again and saying, listen, the Scriptures give us, uh, this is the context in which we have to work. God has revealed himself, and so we can't step outside that just out of speculation. We have to make sure that what we're teaching and what we're believing fits within what God has revealed to us. Uh, So we'll do that next week. Uh, and then the last two weeks, as I said, we'll look at some of the key theologians. And I think what that'll do is, uh, and we'll look at their contributions, I think it'll give you a kind of a pretty well balanced look at what the church is dealing with in these 200 years. Yes? Yeah. Yes, they would have. Had, Hebrews was definitely they were looking at Hebrews. In fact, a lot of the arguments were out of Hebrews. Um, I don't know exactly. I, I, it was Hebrews was certainly circulated and read and even recognized. I believe the canon. I want to say the canon. I want to say the canon had been formalized. There were still books being debated. Uh, but I think in terms of Hebrews, I think it, the canon was pretty much, I think all of the early church fathers recognized Hebrews. Um, there was some debate early on because we don't know who the author is. And one of the criteria was that it was either an apostle or someone close to an apostle like Mark. But, uh, but I think with Hebrews, I think they, all of the early church fathers thought it was Paul, um, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. So I want to say... Hebrews is definitely at play here. Whether it was canonized, I'm not sure. But I think it was. I think the canon had been already kind of formalized at this point. Yes? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't cover the Council of Ephesus because the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon are pretty much the same thing. And the Council of Ephesus really didn't have any major contributions. They were dealing with the same issues that the Council of Chalcedon dealt with. Uh, yeah, because it, it was like 20 years before. So, yeah, that's why I didn't. I just kind of skipped it. But, yeah, good point. I meant to bring that up. Okay, let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your... Graciousness to us, Lord, as we as the church grope, as it were, in darkness to try to figure out some of these lofty things that you've revealed to us. And uh, Father, I do pray that you would continue to protect your church from error. Help us to see clearly um, uh, what you've revealed. And uh, Father, we do pray that you would um, help us to be submissive to your word and and, uh, and stand in awe of your revelation and never think that we can figure things out better than you um, or elevate our reason above your word and uh, father i pray that you would uh, just allow us to continue as a church to be focused on your truth and to uphold it um, as your truth comes under attack we pray that we would stand firm and in and, and a loving and gracious way And, uh, Father, that you would be honored and glorified in that. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.